Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Red Raccoon Radio, uh, a show where a customer manages to kidnap two employees of his friendly local game store and sits them down to talk about all the nerdy stuff that he needs to express before he explodes in the coming weeks. Luckily, I was able to trap two of the big wigs of Red Raccoon today, and that means I've got Jamie. Hey, everybody. And I got Jesse. Hello. And guys, today I want to hear. What was that? Trying new things, I guess. What is your radio personality? I guess that's the question. Uh, There's no BuzzFeed quiz for this. Yeah, one of these days we're going to walk in and Jesse's going to sound like Wolf of Mind Jack. He's like, hey, you crazy cats and kittens, let's go. I will say I was in the store earlier and uh, songs from, oh, what's uh, Crazy Taxi we're playing? Oh, it's The Offspring. Yes. So that definitely warmed my heart to the, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Man, I took us right off track within, like, the first two minutes of the podcast. That's what people, the seven people that listen to this are really coming for, Jamie. It's not for us to stay on track. This isn't, it's a small world after all. This is Red Raccoon Radio. This is Crazy Taxi. This is Crazy Taxi. This is the I whole new direction. I played taxi. so much of that when I was in the theaters, or in the, the, at the arcade machine at the movie theaters where I played right. it most it of the time. It was the first game that I owned for PS2. I played the heck out. In college, it was actually in one of our dorms, but it was never plugged in. And so occasionally I'd go in waiting for somebody for lunch or something, and I'd plug it in and play it. And one of the attendants, who was 15 feet from the game machine, came up to me and said, Hey, I see that you play this all the time. I need you to unplug it when you're done. Because if I hear Offspring one more time, I will murder the next person that comes to my front desk. (laughs) That's awesome. Because they would fear it all shift. Over and over again. Nice. I love that. Yeah. So, um, first of all, all I want is in my top three offering songs. I can understand if you hear the same song over and over again. It gets really bad. Second of all, they have a machine down at Arcadia in McLean. So. Crazy Taxi Machine? Mm-hmm. Stand oh, up, take man. Crazy Taxi Machine. So how long is it going to take before we get a Crazy Taxi Machine in the basement of Red Rat Kid? <sighs> there is not enough space. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I would love to have some arcade machines. I know a bunch of game stores that do have some arcade machines and some pinball machines, but there's just no space. You know, if we... Maybe if we ever find a bigger place to move into, maybe you know, the Adams Family pinball machine, that would be amazing. Understandable. One of my favorite pinball machines, um, that and the uh, Judge Dredd pinball. They have both of those down at Arcadia, too. This isn't just an ad spot for Arcadia, I'm just saying. This really sounds like it. Are they a sponsor now? Should They're I be not. getting paid for doing now, this? Now, that said, if We just love them. Yeah. <laughs> if you were going to... Well, we should tell everybody who doesn't know, Arcadia oh, yeah. is a, a, Ar- like a museum yeah, yeah. in McLean, Illinois. So it's about 20 minutes to get there from Bloomington. And they literally have one building in, in right on the square in McLean that has mostly classic stand-up arcade games and then another building a kind of catty pinball corner heaven. across the, uh, yeah. across the square that's nothing but pinball machines yeah yeah there's there's been many times where I've gone down there with twenty dollars and quarters and just had a great time for two or three hours and come back happy afterwards and if it's where I'm thinking it's not exactly a big town like you should not oh, be God. expecting yeah, it's the only uh, thing on that I think McLean's room. maybe yeah. 1200 people yeah right? so you're not lost if you get there and you think this feels like this should be like a bigger place for a museum. Yeah. It's a yeah. it's a personal choice museum, not like a national right. museum. Yeah. Understandable. Well, sadly, we are not recording from Arcadia. We are recording at the secret location for Red Raccoon Games. And that means our first stop in is, what's been going on this week? How's it been going? 
This week has been, um, you know, last time you asked me that question, I was on the uh, podcast with Jill. It was everything was Pokemon, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, this week has been just we've talked about how we're trying to stock up now even though we're in when now we're in September for Christmas time and it has just been reception of product and getting things in and getting it organized and put away and getting things ready um, that's what really the focus for me this whole week has been it's just new stuff is arriving putting it out getting it all set up on the website and getting getting everything put away um, we did get the, you know, we talked about last episode that we we're going to actually do a print catalog for the holidays, and that did get sent to the designers. We finalized every uh, every game that was going to be in that catalog. That's at the designers. I've been going back and forth with um, them on some product language, make sure that's happening. But it's it's really just been a lot of a lot of dealing with all the stuff coming in. You know, we've been doing a lot of stuff around structuring for scheduling and looking at availabilities as we're coming into the holidays because um, we have more staff members in the store than we have ever had at this point. We hired three new people and they are all doing amazing. We're trying to get them used to the ebb and flow of kind of the the moving chaos that is dealing with 14 different communities of players for their various <laughs> games and with all the customers who come in and with their interests and their hobbies and what their niche is and um it's been it's been it's been a good week that's great to hear yeah what do you think jesse did i miss anything no i mean i barely remember last week at this point i my last week in a nutshell for me was Catching up because the holiday, right? Anytime that there's a Monday off for a holiday, that we were closed for Labor Day, it's everyone catching up for the rest of the week, right? And I remember coming in on Tuesday and thinking, I'm going to get it. I'm going to do my best to get ahead. I'm going to get this new schedule with all the new folks figured out so we have an idea of where where we're busy and we need to have people. And it was 4, th- four o'clock on Thursday, which is the last day of the week for me. And I went, well... I get to start working on that project now. <laughs> but we just we keep getting things in. We keep having stuff pop up, and it's good. We're, we're keeping busy, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And it, nobody, knows what, uh, nobody knows what winter this year is going to look like, but um, we're trying to be as prepared as we can based on it being different from it's ever been, right? So Yeah, and, and we yesterday, so we were recording on, on Sunday. Yesterday we had the second Saturday sidewalk sale. And we did um, a bunch of clearance of board games to make space because we're running out of space on the shelves on the wall to put things out and display them. So we pulled a list of all the board games saying, you know, what do we only have like one or two copies of? And we we blew all those ones out, the ones that we we weren't going to reorder. Um, they'll all still be available for special order if you've had your eye on something in the past, but we just we got to make room for all the new stuff coming in. I will say that recording from the secret location that we are, uh, I was in here the other day with Jeff who threatened to make a box fort with everything that is being <laughs> stored up here. So I uh, definitely can see that you guys are getting ready and, and set up for the wintertime festivities. Yeah, it's it's I was 
um, I was just I just had a meeting with some Illinois Wesleyan kids, and we get asked on a regular basis if we will help work with their marketing classes, hmm. either ISU or IWU. And so I was working with some Wesleyan kids, and um, even you know, I'm not even them, but um, I'm glad to know, glad to hear that they are aware of a lot of the supply chain shipping issues. They're hearing it as well, um, which is impressive to me because I didn't pay attention to anything in college. <laughs> I barely paid attention to the classes I was in, let alone what was going on in the world. So I'm glad to hear they're more on top of it than I was when I was in college. As the world is slowly destroying around us, I think the walls are a little bit closer than probably when you were in college. So You know, the Internet is the great equalizer, right? I mean, when it, and it sounds like, oh, my God, I was in college so long ago. But, um, you know, going to ISU and Heartland in 95 was really – some people were just starting to get dial-up internet access. You know, that, that wasn't a thing when I started in colleges. We would dial into some bulletin board systems. Um, found out the hard way that Springfield was not a local phone call to Bloomington when we got a $300 <laughs> phone bill back then. Cha-ching. Yeah, it, well, minimum wage back then was 386 so $300 bill, that was like $100 of work. That, was, that sucked. That was not a good deal. Uh, but yeah, the access to information is so completely different, and I think that's a big reason why board games have exploded in popularity because there's access to the information about all these games that are out now. Back then, you had, you know, two or three major players like a Mattel and a Hasbro and a Parker Brothers, and and Avalon Hill, and that was kind of it. I mean, even in the mid 2000s like 2005 2006 when i first started to get a taste for um hobby board gaming my introduction was like a friend took me to acme and peoria and they had like munchkin and frag and a bunch of like steve jackson stuff i had never heard of, like and i had heard about rpgs like i had tuned into like world of darkness and stuff like that a few years before but i had never heard about like board games really yeah it's it's all completely different you know um what was uh, Gamers Haven was in Uptown Normal when I was going to school, and Siberia was the video game cafe across the street, and then they merged into one building um, before I graduated. But if it if it wasn't on the shelf at Gamers Haven, um, you know that was my only access to know what was out there as well. I don't know how he got his access back in the day. I'm assuming it was all catalog based we still get some catalogs but mostly everything we're accessing information now is the internet yeah so speaking of accessing information on the internet that's where a lot of our news stories come from and this week kind of also involves a bit of technology too for our first one uh many people here are familiar with the game keyforge which kind of made a splash what was it now two years ago three 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 or four i meant four so for those of you that are not aware keyforge is supposed to be a Collectible card game in a collectible way. deck game. I forget yes. what they call themselves. Um, unique deck game, I think. But what made it different was, you know, Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, Card Fight, Vanguard. All of those were based on individual cards, and you would take the cards and assemble them, and build a deck. KeyForge came out saying, we have a computer algorithm that generates it so that every deck that comes out is unique and you always kept that deck together and so you collected full decks to play against other people that was a completely different twist than the individual card 
I don't even think that you could actually play it as individual cards because the decks are marked on right. the backs of them which ones go with which which other cards. So and each one gained their own name from the algorithm, which. Right. The first problem that I ever heard of with Keyforge was that some of those names were not exactly family friendly as the they game had a tried to be. Of kinks that popped up there. Literal um. kinks. Literal <laughs> kinks in some cases. Um, and the funny thing is, they also did a run of uh, a run of decks that were store promos that a store's name would be thrown into the algorithm, and I think we still have a few of those actually. I think we have one or two. Yeah. Because they, they showed up so late right. that people weren't as interested in them anymore. Well, and that's... So the thing about Keyforge is that it's a really, really neat idea, and I love that you can just go grab a deck and go. You can just play straight out of a couple of $10 decks that you pick up. Mm -hmm. uh, Jamie's mentioned before he likes to play Magic, but he doesn't like deck construction. He wants to have a prefab deck put in front of him. Um so Keyforge is really neat in the way it does that. Now it does mean that you're probably cracking decks to find a play style that suits you. Correct. And there's some cool stuff where like cards would appear occasionally out of faction in a deck, and that's a neat little kind of wild card. Um, the trick to that, well, we can talk about the news and then come back around to the strengths and weaknesses we've discovered with Keyforge. Right, So, and, and this is definitely a weakness that apparently they've noticed. Because uh, the news that is coming out this week is that Keyforge has been somewhat put on hiatus uh, because they have not announced what the problem is, but the algorithm that they were using in order to create the decks, make sure that they were all unique, has apparently found a flaw. And so they have now put a pause on it without really alluding to what the issue is, but saying, you know, we're going to go ahead and, and just stop production until we get this figured out. Now, but at the same time, they said, we're going to stop production but when we remove, we resume, they did tease the success. Correct. So they, they, they put out some imagery, they put out some, you know, the name, but um, they just said, we're going to, once we got to fix this first, and it's going to take us a while. And this is something that I found really interesting, and especially a lot of the other episodes of the podcast, if you've listened to, or bared through, depending on my audio quality, but... Uh, the fact that we always talk about technology being adopted into video games and how technology is so important. Tabletop games. Especially with tabletop games. Um, and this is one where... Did I say video games? Yes, I did. did again? <laughs> ah! I, I'm horrible. I don't know why you guys let me host. Get the stick. <laughs> That's fair. For later. For later. Uh, but yes, with these tabletop games, including technology inside of them... Uh, does sometimes create these little hiccups. Now, this is one that's a little bit more public than I've seen because normally if an app has an issue, they're able to kind of go in and fix it, and that's all there is to it. But with this news, it sounds like the technology that is the whole basis of the program has created a flaw, and I'm wondering if it's going to then somehow affect the previous decks as well in order to fix it, if this is going to be a huge retcon or just a small little hurdle they have to jump over. It's so, a good question, but they're not telling us what right. the problem was, so there's nothing but speculation right, right. now. We, exactly. we don't know. So what's been said is just that there is a problem with the algorithm that they have to fix before they can go forward. What I am assuming that that means is in generating stuff for the new sets, right? Because obviously whatever they were doing has worked apparently for the last three, four, however many sets have come out. Um, it, I think most likely their partial transparency is just to give people a, hey, we're not just putting this one on the shelf, because the Asmodee family of companies has 
put games on the shelf, especially stuff that's in the Fantasy Flight area where things just go radio silent and then people start to get nervous. And is this game canceled or is it on hiatus? Or it gets shuffled between uh, um, studios as we've seen some stuff move to Atomic Mass games with the miniatures games that used to be under Fantasy Flight. Although apparently there's old Fantasy Flight um, faces that work in Atomic Mass, so I guess that makes a little bit more sense than uh, I originally had thought. But I, it'll be interesting to see. I haven't played a whole lot of Keyforge myself since it came out. I think it's a neat idea. I would sit down and try it more. Um, it's it, it had suffered for us in the same way that a lot of other supply and demand games have with FFG in the past, where, like Destiny, of it's really hot, we can't get it, by the time we can get more of it, the next set is out, people may or may not care about the previous set. Um, Keyforge, from what I've heard from those who play it, had a hiccup between sets one and two, where in the context of having sets one and two out, set two had a more control, long game, tempo kind of, uh, kind of setup to the decks, whereas in contrast, set one was more aggressive and fast playing, and apparently those two didn't mesh well um, because set two decks would usually play too slowly in comparison. They'd play well with each other, and as someone who likes to play slow decks, I totally get that, right? That frustration. Uh, but I haven't heard anything about the last couple of sets. It's there's a small but dedicated group that still kind of buys stuff here. The pandemic definitely affected organized play for Keystone in a big way, or Keyforge in a big way. Uh, I'm frankly surprised that it has survived the pandemic so far. More yeah. power to them. They did put out some print and play decks just to give people something they could do during COVID. And that went over very well with the community they really appreciate to have something to do of course everybody only had access to the same decks but if you were stuck in your house with you know a significant other you still had something you could do to print it out cut it put it in front of some you know other cards to use as backings and at least play a yeah. little bit see some new interesting stuff so that was that was a cool move that they did last year but i i think yeah, Jesse, you said it best, that Keyforge was another victim of Fantasy Flight mis, uh, misshipping, misallocating, underestimating. Underestimating is probably a better phrase. The popularity of a new release that they put out, and they very much, I feel like they very much shot themselves in the foot because people wanted to play but we, we couldn't get any product for them to play with. And, you know, we've seen it, we've seen that as a recurring theme from Fantasy Flight uh, with Legend of the Five Ring LCG, with uh, Star Wars Destiny. Of course, Star Wars in anything is going to be ridiculously popular, and they, they completely underestimated what they needed for that one. And by the time they righted the ship, it was too late. And those almost, people had moved on. It almost reminds me of how you see a video from the era of a traffic jam, that when it actually is cleared up, not everyone keeps moving at the same time. Mm -hmm. That traffic jam moves as almost it's a wave throughout. So if you do have that shortstop of, well, we just don't have enough product, by the time it actually gets to the point where the product can flow, people have already been affected by yeah. it and moved on. And, and not to make it sound like this is some easy thing, right? It's it's They have a very difficult balance to make between making sure there's enough product for the anticipated hype but not having too much of the product. It's just, speaking as someone who traditionally um, 
before I worked at the shop, I played a lot of Fancy Flight games. I consider them one of my favorite studios. My opinions are slightly different in the more recent years under the Asmodee banner, if I'm being frank, um, but fair. It's They've experienced that a number of times, right? So it's growing pains a it lot. It is growing pains. Yeah. Well, it's and also being They're a not the only ones either, They're not right? the only ones. Look at this year with Flesh and Blood. Yeah. New new collectible card game coming out of what, the New Zealand. New Zealand. And so they've hit some pretty serious supply and demand issues for Flesh and Blood as well. And I'm not surprised on that one because I I remember getting the the media packet for Flesh and Blood. And it was in this really cool envelope, um, and it had a couple demo decks and a little like hello letter and there's this whole, hey, this is a new CCG that's an original IP, and we're based in New Zealand, and all this. And I looked at it, and I went, I'll try these demo decks out, but more power to you doing a CCG that's not based on a pre-existing franchise, and you guys are based in New Zealand, which I can only imagine what that means for uh, for shipping and fulfillment. And so I mentioned it to Jamie that existed, and he's like, yeah, more power to him. And I was like, oh, I'm going to take these decks home and try it, and I never got around to it. Next thing I know, a few months later, we're in the middle of the pandemic, and people are going, so anyone got any of them flesh and blood boxes that are going for $1,000? <laughs> and I looked and was like, well, good on you guys. You did it, right? It, it took off huge It took in off Europe. huge. And uh, to their credit, the company is the, co- the stores that stuck their neck out for them initially and took the risk. They prioritized them. Makes sense. Other stores that want to get in on it, they're trying to prioritize and say, if you run organized play, we'll get you product. We don't just want people flipping boxes, you know, and not making it to where people can actually access it to play. We've got a group that plays here at the store. I haven't gotten to play it myself yet, but it is a, we were talking about this just before we started recording. Some CCGs are like magic where you don't have like a character card for your deck. Other CCGs are like Magic Commander or Force of Will or um, you know things like that, where you have a character card that your deck is built around. And uh, Flesh and Blood is like that, where you're equipping weapons and doing tactics and equipping armor to uh, a warrior. I think it's really neat and sounds different. And one of these days, I'm going to try it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take us on a slightly different track for just a second, um, bringing us back around to the technology question because. Keyforge was designed by Richard Garfield. And Richard Garfield, of course, his, probably his most famous game is Magic the Gathering. Uh, I've he, heard of it. You've heard of that one? Yeah. 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 Uh, he has a new Kickstarter out that we just backed at the store for Soulforged. So instead of Keyforge, now it's Soulforge. And Soulforge talks a lot about having decks and unique cards, but I think... This time, uh, Soulforge is talking about having cards that are unique from each other because they have uh, some technology algorithm that is procedurally generating cards to make individual cards deck different. Keyforge, the card was always the same, but the deck composition may be different. Soulforge, from what I'm understanding on the Kickstarter, right, I've not touched the game yet, but it sounds like they're talking about individually generated cards. that are different from each other as well. So that's an interesting take on it. And then it looks a little bit like if you took Keyforge and Smash Up and put them together because you're, you've got a character card that you're basing it around. I think they're called the, the Forgeborn, if I remember right. And 
and then you take two different procedurally generated decks and you're putting them together to, to play, make a playable, you know, deck that you're going to participate in the game with. So it, it sounds like a, a, a mix up of Smash Up and Keyforge together. So we'll see how this plays out, right? So he's the uh, he's the guy who came up with the procedurally generated decks for, for Keyforge. We'll see how this plays out in Soulforge. Now, from what I'm scanning here, looking into this, it does seem like it has an element that I have been wanting from a collectible card game for some time, and that is, let me create a deck, and then let me play that deck in real life and online, and let me manage both of those. And from what I'm seeing, that seems to be the direction they were going, and that's what I originally thought Keyforge would end up being, because of their codes where you scan the right. deck and you knew immediately what was in the deck and I thought that would be such an easy transition so that you could practice you know online and still play with your friends and be even better with it but Keyforge never seemed to make that leap and Keyforge did recently announce they are doing a digital version and I'm not sure how it will interact with the physical game but they just announced that I would hope that you could just scan in the QR code of the deck that you own already. And then when you transfer ownership, just like you do right now, it moves, right? Yeah. And I agree with you, John, because that's something I've always found very neat. And I, I think we talked about this a little bit before when talking about like uh, Magic uh, Arena. The experience that you get playing a card game on the table and playing a card game on an app or whatever, it's a different experience, but I enjoy both of those. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that was something I liked about Lightseekers and Age of Sigmar uh, Champions, which are both uh, now dead card games, rip, um, is that you could scan the cards into the app and physical cards you owned would become part of your digital collection. I really liked that element because like, I can play a game laying in bed or something like that, right? When I'm, but I'm either way, playing an app version of a game, if there's a physical version, it's going to make me want to play the physical version. Right. So I know that Keyforge and Soulforge outcoming still have that big name behind them, the creator of Magic. But there's another thing that just came out this week that has some big names behind it as well. Jesse, did you want to get one last Before thing? Before we out? move off of CCGs, I just want to I want to put a little it's a little teaser burner out there because this is coming up, I believe, in September. This is September in October. <laughs> so I just got the solicit. Um, My Hero Academia, the collectible card game is coming in October according to what we have been told. And we have pre-ordered it. It's available for pre-order at the store. If you are a My Hero fan, you definitely should check it out. We were talking about CCGs that involve character-based cards. The setup of that uses the Universal Fighting System is you choose a character from the show and that is the person your deck is about. And the cards you play are their techniques they can use, their attacks, their accessories, stuff like that. So. So we were talking about CCGs, and I figured I'd put a little shout out there for anyone who likes my hero. Check out the CCG. We're gonna we're gonna be having it at the store. That's is... interesting because we were talking about when this all came up. I have never seen. I don't know anything about my hero academia. The Jesse and 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 other people at the store, Jill and Jenna, gave me the rundown about the show, and then I went home for a family function. And my nephew's got a My Hero Academia backpack on, and he watches it religiously all the time. And it's, it's like I missed, I missed it. I never caught on with it, but he knows everything yeah. about it too. So, it'd be interesting to see how this plays out, right? Yeah. Because it seems really popular right now 
with grade school and junior high mm -hmm. kids and is it a game that they can actually play is it That's or is it so complex that you're, right. those people who actually know all the history in the show don't know how to actually play the game well and based on my experience with because i played universal fighting system games before the the system has been used for Street Fighter, King of Fighters, Soul Calibur. Dragon Ball? Uh, is that a not there? Dragon Ball. Okay. But um, uh, they, it's went through a few different licenses in its time. It is. It was always advertised as a card player's card game. It is intentionally a very in-depth in game. It takes a lot to get into. So I was curious when I was like, oh, I can see why this would work well for My Hero Academia. But as designed, it's very obtuse. From what I have heard, it sounds like when they do organized play, there's going to be UFS organized play that allows any UFS cards, including My Hero, and there will be My Hero specific organized play. What that tells me is that the My Hero cards are probably going to have a lower power curve than most UFS. They'll probably be less complicated, but within their own ecosystem, they're going to do well. So if you take that and you play it against a Mortal Kombat or a Soul Calibur deck, Maybe it's not going to be very strong, but if you're just playing My Hero versus My Hero, it's going to be amazing. And I like that because, frankly, I always liked the idea of playing UFS, but it was always... A lot of the, even the starter decks felt like they were trying to be too cute for themselves, it, I think is a good way to put it. They're focusing a little bit more on trying to get that fan recognition than right. really creating a robust game for people to play. Yeah. That's understandable. Speaking of things that people are familiar with, even though I had a perfect segue just like five minutes ago, <laughs> I it totally got derailed. Uh, I wanted to bring up one news story that I thought Jamie would be super excited about because Jamie on multiple occasions now has talked to me how much he loved Dragonlance. Mm -hmm. Jamie uh, likes Dragonlance? I know. <laughs> I'm, not sure if I've ever, I'm not sure if I've ever heard about that before. Yeah. Well, the people who created Dragonlance, Tracy and Laura Hickman, have announced that they are actually going to be creating a supplement for D&D &D 5e that is based in a brand new world. It is not Dragonlance, but it is their creation on their own. And which... I, I, I just want to cut you off for a second, because anyone who is listening to this and isn't familiar with Dragonlance, they also made Curse of Strahd. They made the original Ravenloft module back in... Was that a first ed module or second ed? No, it was a second ed. Yeah. So if you're just going, why do I care about these creators, and you're like, I don't know anything about Dragonlance, if you like Ravenloft, then... And That's all of this, of course, is Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. I yes. should say that for, for people that are unfamiliar. So I did not know much about Dragonlance growing up. In middle school, I got one Dragonlance book, which was, I think, book like three of seven or whatever. And I tried to jump right into it because the cover looked cool. My mistake, they are not forgiving to new people. They <laughs> Larry, really especially Larry Elmore, did, Elmore did all the artwork on all those ones. I loved the covers of all those books. They were beautiful. And I actually ended up lending it to a friend who had actually read the other books. Uh, I never saw it again because that's how middle school works. But what I will say is uh, I got into a little bit more research and found out that they created the whole Dragonlance world in like a car trip yeah. that they were going down. And they were just bouncing ideas off one another. And I think that is the cutest couple like activity that I've ever heard of in the geekdom of, you know what, let's create a world together and then end up being one of the most popular modules for Dungeons & Dragons. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Jamie, I have to ask, the news that this campaign is going to be sky pirates and airships and flying across the world trying to find the origins of your people, how does that make you feel as a Dragonlance fan? Well, I will, let me first say that I wish that they were bringing Dragonlance back, right? And, and bringing Dragonlance from second edition and bringing up the fifth edition. That, so that would be my ultimate 
nerddom <laughs> right there is is actually being able to play Dragonlance. There are new Dragonlance books on the way. Um, I think I have most of them that exist and have read them all. Um, if I might have missed some along the way because there was a lot of them, They're like twenty something of them all together, or it might be more than that. And uh, but no, the fact that uh, the Hickmans are they are great at world building. And that's what this is, is, you know, uh, over the years of Dungeons and Dragons, we've had a bunch of different worlds. We've had uh, Greyhawk, and then we had Dragonlance, and then we had uh, the Forgotten Realms, uh, Ravenloft, um, uh, Eberron. Uh, Mystera. The, yeah, oh, God, I forgot about that <laughs> one. Um, and there's, there's been a lot of different worlds that have been created, and since we've gone to 5th edition, um, fifth edition has pretty much said the default world that everything is going to be set in is the Forgotten Realms. Um, Forgotten Realms, of course, famously created by Ed Greenwood as an adventure for his players that eventually turned into a whole world and a whole module, and it's the basis of everything at this for point, Dungeons and Dragons. At this point, I feel like it's the most ubiquitous, like when most people think of D&D and a default setting, I think it is Forgotten Realms, as much as they have tried occasionally to say, well, it's not the default setting, but like all of the video game adaptations of note uh, since the like you know, Baldur's Gate series onward had been based in the Forgotten Realms. Yeah. And Temple of the Elm on like evil popular, video games. Yeah, and... all the Drizzt novels that I read as a kid, and you know, it's it's a multi generational thing now. I believe the rumor is the D and D movie starring Chris Pine is supposed to be Forgotten Realms. It, it, so yeah, it pretty much has to be at this point, and. Uh, so the idea that the Hickmans are coming back with a whole new world is cool. And I'm interested to see how this all plays out. Like it's this idea of there was a, a prison where they, uh, this empire imprisoned all these, uh, it almost, there's not a lot of details, but it kind of sounds like maybe it was political reasons why they were put in prison. And then the empire collapses and these people were all forgotten about. And now they're Cough, trying... Australia. Cough. <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought of that, but probably. But it, it, it sounds um, like they're expanding and exploring, trying to figure out what happened and where everything went across a series of islands. And so, uh, but instead of it being heavy, heavy waterborne ship, it's airships and pirates. And as they move and try to expand to find out what's going on in the world, and it, it's a really cool premise. And uh, we've seen a lot of. Um, uh, uh, popularity and resurgence around steampunk stuff in the last five years. So this feels like a steampunkening. Mm-hmm. Is that a phrase? Can I use that? Can I? If not, we're going to trademark yeah, steam, it. Steampunkening of Dungeons and Dragons a little bit, and we'll see how this plays out. Yeah. Well, and I mean, just based on the artwork that's been released so far, it feels a little bit maybe not exactly dungeon punk, but sort of like it's distinct from Eberron. It feels like maybe I would almost say. If most D and D is considered high medieval, this is Renaissance, right? Um, high pirate. Yeah, exactly. It's very piratey, and I definitely I'm interested. Uh, we were talking about that where it's I've thought a number of times of all those different settings for D and D, not many of them really engage with airships. And as someone who you know grew up playing like Final Fantasy VI, I'm just like, where's my airship? Where are my sky pirates? Right. Um, and even Eberron, Eberron has airships and it has like Aetherpunk kind of magitech and stuff, and I like the that. lightning rail right. for train systems. But Eberron is more of a pulpy, like it's further down the way than this, right? right. Eberron has more of a th- 
30s pulp kind of feel to it. Things have gone downhill. Yeah. When this feels more like this is more like a Sky Pirates. Uh, um, oh, uh, the Neil Gaiman Stardust. Yes. It's got a very Stardust kind of feel to it. I feel like Star Wars is kind of the grungy, like things have gone bad, at least in the original trilogy, mm-hmm. and that's what I would say Usually is where Ebron is. Yeah, yeah. Star Trek is more what I see here, where things are a little bit more cleaner. It's about exploration a little bit. Uh, there's definitely has been trials and tribulations that the races have gone through to get to this point, but they are they're trying to maybe be a little bit more altruistic. Maybe I'm reaching a little bit it's here. an interesting comparison. But it, it definitely has that different vibe of things being a bit cleaner and not simpler but more driven towards finding things yeah. instead adventure. of it's adventure. surviving yes exactly yeah i think there's going to be a lot of people that are watching very closely for any news that's coming out about this because the hickmans have that reputation for building these rich and elaborate worlds with a deep history but still leaving you enough room to carve out an adventure in a campaign where you can assist in these you know world shaping events that are happening and and that's also one of the things that they're talked about briefly in the, in the news uh, article that went out is that players through some sort of a organized format will have the ability to shape the world which was we saw that in the early 2000s with Legend of the Five Rings, the card game yeah. did that a lot, but we haven't really seen where players could affect how the world was developed moving forward in a lot of role-playing game systems. Yeah, this living world-ish kind of idea, they haven't said too much about how to work, but it's very interesting. I know there's there's been a lot of uh, a lot of folks interested in like doing things like a Western Marches type campaign where you have multiple different play groups that aren't overlapping, but things they do in the world affect other players and stuff. So I don't know if it'll be something like that, but one of the things that had come up with this when we were looking at it is that this is a third-party D&D compatible supplement. It is not published by Wizards of the Coast. And there is that distinction of where does third-party D&D stuff fall into uh, fall into line with us as far as being retailers and as gamers. Uh, because if it's published by WotC, it's a first-party D&D thing, then there's a certain expectation as far as the quality control that's been done, the play testing, the compatibility, and if you're going to play like Adventurers League, you know, knowing that you can use those supplements where appropriate. And third-party stuff, there is a lot of it because, you know, WotC back with 3rd Edition just changed the nature of the game by making the open gaming license and saying, you can just create stuff for our game. Um, in my opinion, the third-party stuff is you just have to really sift the, the the diamonds in the rough, right? There's a lot of stuff that is of varying quality. Um, this is something that, based on the pedigree of the Hickmans writing it, that already makes me go, it's on my radar. Mm-hmm. But we're super picky with what we bring in that's third-party content. So like, Because there's a ton of it. There's a ton yeah. of it. There's a ton of it, and some of it's good, some of it's not. Some of it hits certain flavors, and just there are some GMs who go... I like third-party stuff. It's cool. There's some who go, if there's a homebrew thing, it's because I made it. Um, I and so like what we have, like we have. <laughs> I like your your GM voice. Yeah. <laughs> so like we carry Limitless Adventures, which is locally grown here. Um, yep. We we know the folks. Yep. And uh, they make really good stuff. We don't care. I always tell people we don't just have it because we know the DM and their play group, and they shop at the store and you know can hand deliver the product. They also just make very good products. Um, yeah. 
We have uh, the Gooey Cube stuff because that came well recommended to us, and that's I haven't gotten to play it, but it looks pretty solid. We do have one of our uh, customers that writes for Gooey Cube yeah. as well. Base does. Yeah. So. I'll say personally, I actually have never backed anything that's not uh, a Watsi or Wizard of the Coast product before. I am I'm not new to D and D, but this is the first generation where I've really invested in it and gotten my books uh, and really been wanting to DM, wanting to do better with that. And I actually backed my first non-Watsi supplemental called Helena's Guide to Monster Hunting. Uh, it's adding elements of like kind of Pokemon feeling as well as like monster hunting as well, where you can get gear and get components from the monsters. Like the monster to hunter your... games by Capcom. Exactly, and so. I, I almost felt like there was a weird betrayal almost of doing that because I know that it is outside the system, which I'm trying to support, but at the same time, I think that these are good ideas and I don't see if Watsi really getting to them anytime soon. Well, you'll see different things like yeah. that in, in the store that fill niches where there is no official Wizards of the Coast book. So um, we got one book that literally is just about um, settlements. Right, because often when you get into higher level player campaigns, you'll you, you will find where the the adventurers in the campaign own an inn, or um, they have a town that builds up around their base or something, and we there's not a lot of rules. There's some high level rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide and in the I think it's the Xanathar's Guide has a couple of paragraphs about how to do it, but there aren't a lot of details about managing um, the finances and things of that nature. I mean, the, I, I run a campaign at home, and the players have an inn. It's actually, we, we've been, we started off doing Dragon Heist, and the players get an inn in Dragon Heist, but there's not a lot of details other than the players have an inn, and it's haunted, and go. Spoilers. And so, yeah, and well, it's it's like four years old, five years old. Do you, do you still have spoilers then? And so I've got like this this uh, you know being a, a a finance kind of nerd owner, I have this fairly detailed Excel spreadsheet that controls like the how much money the players spend on marketing their in and how much time and effort they work in the inn versus hiring other people to work in that generates like you what made, happened at their inn and you made the, them get a whole business plan and a mortgage <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong because yeah. they have an outside investor right. right mort the money lender famous in in neverwinter um is or in Waterdeep is an outside investor and so they have to make payments to pay Mort back as well and he gets his percentage of the profits on top of the Tom Nook their, of the Forgotten yeah, Right, right. Yeah. That's cool though. I like that kind of that's the unique touch that a DM adds in that I really enjoy in a game. Yeah, but but the the settlements book really expanded a lot more of you know, well, what about, um, or do you have a good relationship with the, the, the wagon rights and the guilds to get your product to your store? And, and what about defense? And what about vaults? And where, how do you store your money to keep it safe? And the settlement books added a ton of stuff in that niche that didn't exist in the, any of the D&D books. And some of the monster books that we've gotten in really add a ton of new variants and monsters to, to have your players encounter and challenge that are outside of the norm. We've seen a lot of kind of the same monsters uh -huh. appear, and there's always some cool new ones. Looks like there's going to be some really cool new monsters in the Feywild book that drops like two weeks, I think. Yeah, two weeks. Um, 
but sometimes these dedicated books of just like look at all these crazy monsters that's really one of the places where limitless adventure shines with mm -hmm. some of the monsters that they've created my favorite one out of those is the um the elder mimic oh, and it yes. likes to um the elder mimic uh is much larger than a you know everything's mimics and treasure chests right right but the elder mimic actually impersonates a bridge over a ravine and so as and then it attacks when the players are like halfway over the bridge it's just an amazing, like, what oh, a great that's idea. so good. Yeah. What a great idea that was. Um, so that's why we like the, plus their adventures are well written as well. So I, I like that the open uh, gaming license allows publishers and individuals to come up with these niche books that really fill a gap that exists, doesn't exist. And I, as a D&D Beyond user, I do have to give props that they not only embrace that and say, yeah, go make your own stuff, but at the same time say, you know, you can include some of that stuff in D&D Beyond. If you want to spend the time, you can make your own spells, you can make your own equipment, and, and then have the characters equip it. And it takes some, I wouldn't say programming knowledge, but understanding of how some of these systems work. But they do try and include that. So it really does make that inclusive space for the world that you want to generate. Well, and let's be honest, too. Uh, a good DM will steal content from wherever he possibly can come up with it. So there could be end up being content from this new world that Hickmans are created that land in oh, yeah. my campaign that I'm running. If it's a really cool idea that I've never seen before, uh, I'll, you know, R&D, right? Rip exactly. and duplicate. Exactly. However, there are some... some some genres that D&G just does not meld with. And so one of the last news stories I want to bring up today was the fact that we've been seeing a lot of news about new systems coming out and new games coming out that are from really popular IPs that are really fitting, again, in that niche, but we're seeing that there is a lot of demand for it. So, for example, uh, Hasbro has announced that they've created a whole new 20, uh, D20 system based on uh, Power Rangers... Uh, G.I. Joe and Transformers. Yes. And then... Renegade. 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 Yeah. Sorry. Renegade using Hasbro licenses. Yes. Yes. Excuse me. And then, actually, Avatar, The Last Airbender, put up a Kickstarter for their system, and it's it was over a million dollars, which they weren't not expecting. They weren't expecting it on day two. Right. Which is, was mind-blowing to many of the community that was following that. Um, so I guess my question is, I know that when it comes to D&D, we just kind of talked about the niche things that fit into a world where it's already established and you're just looking for cracks to kind of fill yeah. in. How do you guys feel about when a popular IP kind of comes out and they're trying to just create a system for that? So like you said, not everything fits well into the D&D D20 system, right? Uh, in my opinion... D&D does one thing very well, and that is D&D. And if you want that kind of, you know, depending on your level, if you're going 1 to 20, it's a rags to riches, epic fantasy. You can modify that a little bit, make it high fantasy or low fantasy, but it's, it's very combat-oriented, and it is that type of adventure fantasy. That's what D&D does better than anything else, is being D&D. Um, my personal gets the soapbox out a little bit there. <laughs> but my personal RPG experience is that I started playing RPGs in the mid-2000s when 3rd Edition was super popular and the OGL had, like we just talked about, just blown the door open on everyone going, I don't have to come up with my own sort of variant on effectively this is D&D, &D, but, you know, fancy heartbreakers as they called them, 
I can just uh, publish something that's compatible with the D&D books. And that made D20 even more popular than it had been before in the ecosystem of RPGs, because RPGs, there's always been a lot of systems of RPGs. You know, Traveler's been around almost as long as D&D. Uh, World of Darkness has been around since the early 90s. There's a lot of stuff out there, but D&D always is reigning supreme as the first one and the most popular one, right? One of the things that happened in the mid-2000s is that a lot of companies started to go, you know, we can get more people to buy our books if we make a D20 compatible version of our game. So you have things like Legend of the Five Rings, which used a die pool system that was crafted around executing the flavor of that game. It was very deadly courtly intrigue samurai stuff. And uh, Watsi bought Legend of the Five Rings from AEG, made it a D20 version, they, they actually they made it the third edition version of Oriental Adventures, if I remember right. And it did not do well. It didn't please the old fans. It didn't please new fans because it didn't execute. The rules didn't match the flavor. Similarly, one of my favorite RPGs of all times is Seventh Sea. And Seventh Sea is very epic fantasy, swashbuckling. You are big dang heroes. And uh, it was adapted into a D20 version late in its life because that was the trend to go on, and that was called Swashbuckling Adventures, and it was not good. It did not execute. The, 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 the example I always think of is Cthulhu D20. Possibly the worst combination that you can make is taking Call of Cthulhu, which is about investigation, and if you get into combat, that's a bad idea, and trying to make it work in D20, where you effectively just have a lot of depth of systems that don't fit what you're trying to play, right? So that's where I... I got very exhausted seeing those things back in the 2000s of everything trying to be D20 when it wasn't a good fit. It was a marketing move, not a game design move, right? Um, now, that soapbox aside, what I'm very happy to see is when Renegade announced their Power Rangers, Transformers, G.I. Joe games, they're using their own system called Essence 20, which, from what I have seen of it, is very inspired by 5th edition D20 style mechanics but it is not 5th edition D20 right. and I was happy to see that because just frankly I don't think that those IPs would fit well. I think you would end up in this, when they when they got those licenses from Hasbro, of course Hasbro owns Watsi, I expected part of the deal there was probably they are going to say yeah and you're going to use the system that our company makes and looking at Essence 20, it has some, uh, it still is a, you roll a d20, add your skill, see if you hit your thing, but there are other dice as well. The, the higher your skill is, the higher die you can roll, but you also get to roll a die pool of the smaller dice as well and see what your best result is. I like dice pools, that intrigued me. So they're obviously, and, and if I remember right when I'd read it, they're using a similar system, but a tweaked version of it for each of these games. So they're leaning into executing the flavor, and I'm glad to see that. Similarly, like I don't think that Avatar The Last Airbender would shine in D20. I've often wondered what the best system is to use for it, and we see that Magpie is using a variant of Powered by the Apocalypse, which seems like as, as good an idea as any to me. I've played with Powered of the Apocalypse in a game called City of Mist, which mm -hmm. is noir and inter interacting with legends and lore. It. It's, it's a fantastic game, uh, but it does lend a bit of simplicity to it. So you don't have to think, okay, I'm going to swing my sword if I hit, and then I'm going to be able to do damage. What does that look like? It's much more narrative-based. And I think that, especially if kids are getting excited about 
playing in an Avatar world. Mm-hmm. If you set them down, it's like, all right, first of all, you need to read the player's handbook to get into Avatar. That is a stumbling block. There's some kids that will eat that up, but some kids that won't. And if you can just tell a kid, you know what, roll 2d6s, which are the most parent, you know, you can yeah. get out other board games and pull those from. You don't need special dice and say, you know, just what are you, what is your character good at? Then they're going to be good at that. And dream up what you want, and we'll together create a narrative. That's going to be so much better for Avatar. And I think that there were some people that were hoping for a more robust system from what I've read uh, from the comments online. But I do think that having that narrative flow that, you know, if you screw up, it's going to be really bad. But if you do well, it's going to be really good. And it's just that simple. I think it's going to really shine in more. I mean, bending in Avatar is a very organic thing. It's right. You have what the powers can do and then use your imagination to go from there. For the people who want it to be very crunchy, they just need to play Avatar using like the hero system exactly. and have fun getting a you know a graphing calculator out for character creation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if I hear it at a school. The interesting thing about this to me is not the system, right? It's the IPs that they chose because G.I. Joe was very much my generation where it was a get off the school bus and run home to catch before the episode started playing in WGN, right? And it was a, and then it was G.I. Joe and, and Transformers and, and He-Man all kind of like right in a row that you had to get home as fast ah. as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it, it's the, the, the role-playing game for G.I. Joe I wonder if that's just a very limited thing because that cartoon was off the air and gone before, you know, you guys are younger than I am. That cartoon was gone. The comic's been around and has been rebooted multiple times. We've had some movies that have come out that have not done stellar. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, I wonder if it's such a very niche age group of people who are going to have these fond mem- memories of G.I. Joe. Similarly, you know, we've talked about before Power Rangers for Jesse. Yeah. By the time Power Rangers came out, um, it was a stupid show that my brother and sister always wanted to watch that kept me from watching what I wanted to watch when I was babysitting them. Jesse, did you notice the reverence that G.I. Joe had, but Power Rangers right out of the gate was just a stupid show? Did you notice what that? What I'm saying is you guys are actually right. the age of my younger brother and sister who wanted to watch that, and for you, that was the show, and it was amazing. And, and Jesse has done very uh, well at talking up and and showing people how the Power Rangers games that have come out, the board games that have come out, fit into the niches that made people happy. Right? I'm pretty sure you own the Power Range the, I do. Uh, Ranger Heroes game of the too. Heroes of the Grid. Yes. And it was a it was a game that for you guys was like this was your childhood and it was the same reverence that I have for G.I. Joe. Exactly. So you're a very narrow niche of people who are going to be interested in a Power Rangers game because now we've got a, a you know, you guys are both uh, millennials. We've got Gen Z who Power Rangers is maybe they catch some reruns of it on, but it's not the same thing. So I'm just from a business perspective, I'm wondering if there's enough of a customer base for each one of these games because they were so, you know, Transformers had a much longer life across multiple generations. But Power Rangers and G.I. Joe were such niche things for Gen X and for, for millennials. 
I just wonder if there's enough customers to make these successful games. That is a very interesting point, Jamie. I mean, these are intergenerational things that don't, they seem strange to pair together, except the fact that Hasbro as a company has been buying up our collective childhoods. Anything that Disney doesn't buy, Hasbro does. Well, that's very true. And that is really how these things get grouped together. Now, to a degree, you have things like, um, for those who read comic books, um, IDW has had an ongoing um, shared universe since um, the past few years with G.I. Joe, Transformers, um, which Transformers got a reboot. I think it's still in the new continuity with uh, G.I. Joe because they did crossovers. Shockwave are, um, actually became a G.I. Joe. Um, I had no idea. Yeah, or not, sho- not Shockwave. Um, oh, it's going to bother me. The purple, uh, the purple Jet. The one who looks just like Starscream, but he's purple. That's Skywarp. 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 Okay, I was like, Thundercracker? Yeah. No. Nope, not Thundercracker. He's blue. My favorite. Um, but yeah, Skywarp becomes a member of G.I. Joe in the comics. Uh, but they also have, like, um, what was it? Uh, Rom. Rom. Rom Space Knight yeah, is Rom in Space there. Yeah, Rom Space Knight's in there. Weird low um, dig. The, uh, the one that was uh, on motorcycles, and I think Mask. it was... Mask, where it's like one guy who turns into five or something like mask that. Mask is oh. in there? Yeah, no, so mask, mask is not one into five. It's five into one? It, mask is the ones where they had like transforming like helicopters okay. too. Right, right. They they would, like regular mask, cars. They put on the helmet, yeah. the mask, yeah. and then it would plug in, and they're like the, the, yeah, the, the Trans Am, the window wings mm-hmm. opened up, like yeah. it had goal wings, and they opened up, and it There's been a bunch of 80s stuff that has been under the radar that Hasbro went, let's reboot that in the IDW comic. Now, the Power Rangers comics had a crossover with Transformers once, but those are done by Boom Studios. Studios. Yep. That has been incredibly popular. Like, that is its own. And the current run of Power Rangers shows for the last couple seasons have been on Netflix, getting first run on Netflix. Um, those have been moderately popular. Power Rangers actually just included their first LGB- LGTBQ character. Oh. Uh, the Green Ranger in the current run is going to have a, a romance arc. Neat. That's a drag. It's like Dragon Knights or something like that. Uh, Dino. Re- Dino Knights. Knights. Something like Dino, that. Dino Charge. No, Dino There's Charge was before. Di- uh, Dino Fury. Nope, Fury? that's before too. There's Dino been a lot of Dinos. Yeah. It's the Ryu Soldier series <laughs> season, which, according to I missed. I did watch the Ryu Soldier season of Super Sentai, but I hear it was kind of bland. Apparently, this is one where the Power Rangers uh, reinterpretation of it is actually more popular with people who watch both versions of the franchise. See. They're missing a critical part of my childhood that didn't. You guys just went through. Like I remember all these things, right? What about Voltron? So Voltron <laughs> is tied up is, is in that legal in things. Somewhere no, else? no. Okay. So Voltron is—is is that Tatsunoko? I don't think it's Tatsunoko. I am unsure. Um, you can. I know that you can actually. You can buy Voltron on DVD right now. I think I actually saw a whole collection of it at Walmart. And I think you can get the Japanese version of Go Lion and the car one. I can't remember what it was called. Okay. But it is it has gotten less attention. It has gotten less attention. The Netflix has really the Netflix show Voltron oh, did Legendary an amazing Defenders. job. That was it was cool. I liked yeah, that. and it and it brought it up. And I think that they're letting that settle for yeah. a little bit longer. So this is interesting then because you're saying so I had no idea that the shared universe existed. I yep. I watched all these cartoons as individual properties when they were being released when I was a kid, and and at you know the 80s was a time where Hasbro's main focus was 
we're going to make some toys, and then we're going to create a cartoon that will sell Half those hour toys. Commercial, yes. Following that He-Man yeah. theory of well, well GI Joe too, right? Yeah, GI yeah, Joe, He-Man, She-Ra, uh, Mask. As long as there is educational content shoehorned in at the end of the episode, it is okay to sell it to children. Yeah, and, and knowing is half the battle, Jesse. G.I. Joe. <laughs> so it's interesting. I had so again, I had no in, no idea that the shared universe exists. So that what you're saying is there's possibly a larger pool of people that still have these this this memory of this is why I would want to play in this system in yeah. this world. Yeah, and possibly new people mm-hmm. that have been introduced into this because Transformers had such a rise with the Michael Bay movies, especially yeah. even with kids, which that's a whole other conversation. If that should have happened. Maybe like the first two. It, yeah. Maybe. Uh, Megan Fox. Just gonna... Let's just, let's gloss over that for right yeah. now. We're already running late on time, but. This is going to be a two-parter. Yeah. Trans- calling it out, it's going to be a two-parter. <laughs> Transformers uh, has then kids started reading the comic books because they weren't making movies. The IDW the comics shows. are so good. They were. And then they connected to this group of heroes called G.I. Joes? What is this? And it really started introducing kids to G.I. Joes and these other franchises that have been gone for so long. I think the real power of these, these three especially, is the fact that in G.I. Joe, you can say, you know what, I want to create a mountain climber that's going to fight Cobra. And you know what, you give him a name like High Rise, and boom, you've created your character. Uh, In Transformers, you know, I want a decommissioned Concord jet to be my character. Boom. Uh, Tailspin is now yes. your, your... Like, you can create within that universe so yeah. easily, especially in Power Rangers. Yes. You just have a new set of Rangers that do... The, from what I understand, the sort of class uh, aspects are basically the different colors and they're going with... There's the associated... Because you see change-ups, but like red is usually the leader. Blue is often like a utility kind of um, the second-in-command. And it varies. It switches around. But they're kind of going on some of those tropes. And so it's not, well, your options are you get to play these canonical Power Rangers. It's very much create your own team. And you're right. All of those franchises have the place for you to go, this is my team of Joes. This is my original characters for for, uh, Transformers. Transformers. This is my original Power Rangers team. So that is definitely something else. So yeah, yeah. So if you play a game where the characters are already set, and then you're, for example, I played in a a D and D style game where we were supposed to be following the people of Vox Machina, and I I was a, the game system was fine, the DM was great. I just didn't like it because I felt like I was playing somebody else's story, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's why I feel like with some of these IPs, like I would not want to play in the same time as Aang was right. because. That's his story. Mm-hmm. I don't want to follow along with that. But give me a world where, even with Avatar, we went from Aang to Korra. We saw a progression of the world, new characters being introduced. You could reference old characters, and that was fine. But I think that's where the real power of yeah. the character creation and the imagination is going to come from these as well. Because, mm-hmm. Jamie, don't you want to make up your own G.I. Joe character? I don't know. Okay. I'll have to think about it. I mean, okay. I'm... I, uh, I'm such a, I'm so invested in this world of D&D. Um, you know, if, if I'm going to branch outside of D&D, the new Dune RPG book looks pretty good. I mean... You guys you know. are going to have to sell me on this because in my mind, Dune has just such a limited scope so of this, fantastical things I can do in that universe. That is understandable. It's not one that immediately you go, what am I doing here? But... 
we're all talking about an interesting thing as far as role-playing games, right? It's a stumbling block I see a lot come up in things like Star Wars. A lot of people go, how do I make a good Star Wars campaign that is not like just a smuggler-level scoundrel thing? Because there are already heroes doing amazing things in the setting. How am I important? And so you can do it a few ways. For me, I think that the first thing I would do for Dune is you are in a different continuity where Paul Trades dies on his way to Dune or you know something like that, which is essentially anytime you play the Dune board game or Dune Imperium, which I got to play recently, you are essentially doing an alternate take of Dune of what if these factions interacted in different ways. I think that's the take I would go for a Dune game, where it is definitely its courtly intrigue and it's playing all the different factions. So I could take a different spin on that and say that in the books and in the um, 1984 version of the movie, we'll see about the new movie, that once Paul joins the Fremen, there are references to high-level events over the course of four or five Mm -hmm. years that happen as the Fremen expand their influence across the planet before the big climatic battle. So (laughs) I think that there is a lot of court intrigue um, that could happen amongst the the various sieges uh, on Dune itself, or even intrigue and power struggles that are happening inside of the Fremen, um, with spies going back and forth on either side. You still have a lot of high-level politics you could do with the various houses of the Lancerat, who are also trying to influence events that happen on Dune. Um, you know, how does the Spacing Guild fit yeah. into all of this? The Benny Jesuit are working their own angles and everything. One of the so characters could, decides they want to become the director of Chome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. You, so there's a lot of because there's there was they really kind of gloss over in the various books and stuff um, what those years of ha- things that happen in between when Paul becomes a Fremen and when that final battle happens. So yeah. there's a lot of in- things you could do inside of that timeline right there. Definitely. And and to that point, I am a big fan of if you go, okay, here's, here's our divergent point, if you will. Like, you go, we're introducing the story at the second year that Paul has been with the Fremen, and this is where things are as of now. And now the players are in that world mucking things up. And that's what we all, like, again, Seventh Season, one of my favorite settings, partially because it has a very well-built world, and there's a lot of named NPCs that are important. And it'll always stick with me when the GM said, now you're in here and you can change the world. Just because that NPC is the king of this country doesn't mean that it has to stay that way. If you do something that changes that, you're in your own, you're in your own timeline. Okay, in under five minutes, you guys have resold me on this whole entire idea. Cool, we've got it downstairs. <laughs> yep. Okay, great, perfect. <laughs> I'm glad it's downstairs. Uh, obviously, some of these RPGs are not, but let's talk about what so, is actually downstairs. Wait, editing note, editing note. When I say it's downstairs, I want you to put a beep covering that and then just play with the audio so that we don't like insinuate anything about where our secret location is. Oh, yes, I understand. <laughs> I will definitely spend the extra 20 minutes doing that. <laughs> Expect to hear that, for sure. Uh, but I want to talk about uh, what is else is actually at the known location of Red Raccoon Games uh, in the new hotness right now. Because I did take a peek of it before we started recording, which could have been five minutes to get to the secret location, or two hours in a, in a car with a hooded mask on, so who knows. Um <laughs> But there are definitely some things that I'm interested in talking about. The first one that I was really looking at was the 
at the bottom of the rack there is the Necro Moles, which yeah. I believe are the Play-Doh Warhammer. <laughs> right? That's a great way to that's a great way to talk about Necro Moles. So that's um, it's a Kickstarter that we backed and we brought in because they did an amazing job of making their Kickstarter campaign video look like a 90s commercial. And it hit me on all the right places as making me feel that nostalgia, nostalgia build to it. Uh, basically, it is a strategy game where you're using a Play-Doh-like substance and you have molds that you, um, that is your, the, the, the clay is your um, the clay is your units uh, your yeah, resources your resources your, oh. your your mana your magic power yeah. to bring these um, creatures into life and so you are um, you you take that clay and you put it in you put it in a mold and it's like casting a spell each mold actually is is shaped like a spell book mm. and then you put it in there and then that 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 unit has its own abilities that are written on the spell book mold and you put that into play and when somebody when you kill somebody else's units and take them out of the game you you literally smash them and you get to take their clay and use it to create more creatures for you and so it's this give and take of as things are as monsters are destroyed you're taking the clay back and forth in the resources and so it's just this fun kind of concept of having a strategy game that revolves around these old school, they put in, they look like Play-Doh molds right. um, as you're going back and forth. And there's, there's a couple of expansions that go along with this too, where you get different units in the box. You get new molds in the box. So you have new creatures to add to your game. And then there's this also cool concept where you have a plastic ring and it just kind it's of like, felt like the plastic decoder ring a little yeah. bit. Little you know, signet rings. Yeah, that you um, that each one of them is a different spell. So depending on which ring you're wearing when you're playing the game, you you're supposed to smash the other units using the spell that's on your ring to leave the imprint in it. And it's just this this whole kind of cool, crazy retro concept of bringing it all together that really just tickled my funny bone. And so the creepy crawlers theme song is yeah. playing in the back of my head as I'm listening. To oh this. yeah. I know it's a little different than that, no, but. That's kind of how I picture it, just like, make your own units and get going. That is very much the... Everyone should go and look at the Necrobolds commercial that's on YouTube. It is what sold us on it, and the pro, the production value of the packaging and the, the little spellbook molds are just so fun. They're so cool looking. So, yeah, and it is it is a skirmish miniatures game. You measure for movement, the the spell book that makes it has the unit stats on it. So if you want to get if you're if you're looking for a fun skirmish minis game for you as adults or you want to get younger kids in, you don't want to paint and build models, this is this is a thing you should check out for sure. Anything else on the new hotness that really has piqued your interests? Oh, yeah. Well, this this will be one of my games. What am I playing recently? It's Cascadia. Uh, Cascadia is from Flat Out Games. Uh, last year, Flat Out came out with one of our favorite games of last year's Christmas season, which was Calico. This year, it's Cascadia, and it's a hex-based tile game. And it's like a, a little bit of a point salad kind of game where you're, um, you are drafting hexes uh, that are the habitat, 
as well as animals and it's so you can score based on how your animals are gathered together you know you can have salmon in a stream in a long run and score points that way or you could have a pair of bears who have to be solitary no other bears can be touching them and so you score points on your animals but you're also at the same time working on scoring points with the habitat underneath of them so the more areas of contiguous um, habitat that you have the more points you can score at the end game as well so you're keeping track of both layers of the game at the same time super easy to get into um, super easy rule set to go run with as each person's building out their own habitat with their own animals and I taught a bunch of staff members how to play it uh, um, Tuesday and we all had a great time and everybody was that game had a lot of fun because everybody was competing for the salmon except for me I just ignored the salmon and um, but it's always the same five animals and the same five habitats but there's a series of cards that you use the cards to determine how each type of animal will score this game different configurations of them and um, yeah ton of fun pretty casual beautiful artwork beautiful and high quality components um, that's definitely going to be one of my recommendations favorites for the Christmas season Jesse anything popping out of you yeah, there's a couple of really cool things here. Um, one of them is Korra, um, not like Avatar, but it's uh, K-H-O-R-A. And this is one that we got to play early when uh, our friend John from Yellow came and visited us. Um, he brought an early prototype of yeah, the game. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is different. So Yellow is a company that we normally associate with lighter family fare. They are, um, they are King of Tokyo. They are Bunny Kingdom. They are um, a lot of other smaller games. Like they have the the Ninja the Academy, Ninja Academy, and um, Schlatten, Schaffentofen. How do you say that one? Uh, yeah, it's um, Scottish warfare yeah. game of controlling the wall. So they have a lot of. They're usually fun, not necessarily party games, but um, oh, there's also a, the the one where you fling the goblins, flying goblin. Yeah, oh, yeah. that was a good one. Yeah, yeah. So, holding goblins at yeah. each other. Um, but the thing they're most well-known for is definitely King of Tokyo. And this is more of a crunchy um, Euro-style game that is outside of their normal wheelhouse, but they're like, let's try this out. So it's under their yellow expert line. Um, it's developed by a group of Japanese developers, and essentially it is a uh, aggression city-state you're uh, vying for uh, supremacy kind of game. Uh, so you have to balance your resources. Your population is one of your resources. You're trying to elevate yourself for victory points on different trackers for culture and warfare and economics. And every one of the things that was very neat about it is that everyone has a, a stack of action tiles that are one through six or seven. And there is a... A stat that you have as a city-state that tells you basically how much you can spend there without overexerting yourself. And so the higher cost ones are, in theory, stronger, but they also act later in the round. If you want to overexert yourself, you have to spend your population because you're stressing your, your population too much. Um, it's not direct competition, it, so like warfare is a thing, but it's more so about grabbing victory out on the battlefield uh, from a neutral part of the board. Um, it's a really neat game. It's different from other stuff I've played in that genre. I would highly recommend, if any of what I said sounds interesting, or if it doesn't, too, 
uh, go check out Cora from Yellow. Um, yeah, it's we had surprising. a good time. Yeah, and the production value, it's gorgeous. It's got good inlays. I'm a sucker for if a game has the multi-layered stuff so that your tokens stay where they're supposed to be on your trackers. It has that, and I'm a sucker for that. And this is this. I think this is the second game on their expert line. The first one was last year, was with Katara. Was that last year? Was that I this year? I don't think Katara was technically part of the expert line, but it's definitely foreshadowing them doing something more crunchy for sure. Yeah, and it was we we had a really good time with it. And this is one of those games I tell people too, like your whole first game is really a learning exercise, and the second game where it's really going to shine because the first game. We played it, and uh, I realized about three-quarters of the way through, like, I have made bad choices up to this point <laughs> and because I didn't know how they were going to play out mm -hmm. in the long game. So, um, you know, there's a lot of games that are a little crunchier like that where the, your whole first game is really just learning and exploring and understanding the mechanics, and the second game is where it's really going to shine. Yeah. So if people are now intrigued by these games that we've brought up, and they want to say, you know, I just need a little extra push to know what day to come in and buy these amazing products. Uh, what's going on this week that might allure them in? Oh, what is this week? Um, this week is, uh, what's, today's the 11th, no, 12th. So, okay, this upcoming week here, I just had to sort it out in my head where I was in the calendar. Uh, the big thing this week that's going to be happening is the new pre-release for Magic the Gathering. Um, Midnight Hunt pre-release starts Friday. Innistrad. Yeah, Innistrad. We're going back to Innistrad. Innistrad is it's Transylvania. Let's yeah. be honest. It's 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 Gothic werewolves horror. and yeah, it's werewolves and vampires and Frankenstein monsters and stuff and like that. So ghosts. a lot of people are super stoked about that. That'll be going on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. We'll have uh, events there. Saturday is Pop Up Gen Con. So for Gen Con starts this week, for anybody who's going, good on you. Um, please be safe. Lots of hand sanitizer, social distancing. Um, but if you're not going, we have some of the games um, that have been organized by the Gen Con folks that we will be demoing. You'll have a chance for first time ever to play those games at the store if you don't want to go to, to Gen Con. And we're going to be doing the official pop-up Gen Con games, and we're probably going to be mixing some other games that we're really digging at the store right now into that mix, too. I think Cascadia might make it in there. Cora might make it in there as well. We're still trying to figure out a final schedule. But pop-up Gen Con is, is this upcoming Saturday, which I think is the 18th. And so we're going to be running that. It'll be just a way to, to demo a bunch of board games um, during the week coming up. Those are probably the two big events. Am I missing anything, Jesse? Um, no, not that I can think of for this weekend. It's just there's a whole lot going on that day with those those events. And then there's some stuff the following week, um, the following yeah, we're, weekend. we're coming up on, uh, we, we always, well, but not always, we have been the last few years participating in the Day of Play. Um, that's going to be an uptown normal, and we will be out there, Jeff and I, with a booth and a bunch of very much aimed at family-friendly kids sort of yeah. games, things that won't drive parents crazy um, and make them want to poke themselves in the eye like, you know, the worst game ever is Hi-Ho Cheerio. Um, 
So we will be there for day of play for that. And it just seems like there's so much stuff that's all happening in September right now at the end of the month. So that's fantastic. Well, if you want to avoid poking out your eyes or see if the any of the games that we talked about in the new hotness, or you just want to come in and talk to our friendly staff, which most likely will be there because I normally let them go afterwards. I mean, I haven't, I don't know. Did I let Jill out last time? I don't you, you had to push Jill out last that's time. Right. That's right. That's how that leave. works. Hi everyone. This is John Parrott up in the recording booth. Uh, sadly, I did not make sure that we had plenty of digital space for this episode, and it cut off in the last few minutes, but let me go ahead and fill you in. If you want to see any of these games that we talked about on this episode, feel free to stop in the Restore at Red Raccoon Games in Bloomington, Illinois. Uh, if you have questions or comments or criticisms for the podcast, make sure to email them to info at redraccoongames.com, uh, and you can just put podcast in the subject line. And we really enjoy doing this, and we are hoping that we're getting better every time. So we hope that you'll stick with us, grow with us, and we hope that you keep playing.